Well, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing this morning? Good. Amen. It is a privilege to be here when Thomas said, would you come speak for our three-year anniversary? I said, absolutely. No matter when it is, we're going out, we're flying out. No matter what's happening, COVID can't stop us. We are getting together and we are going to celebrate. We have so much to celebrate. Can you just think back? I know that you were a church family before three years ago. I know that you were gathering together in the Heronshaws and the Groves home and you were fellowshipping together. And so God was already beginning to knit this church together. But if we think about the launch date, if we think about three years ago, there was no ABF. There was no Ambassador Bible Fellowship three years ago. You were knit together and fashioned for this moment in this city, for this context, for this culture, by God, for right now. And before three years ago, this church didn't exist. But God in eternity passed. He knew each and every one of you would be here this morning. He knew each and every one of you who would know him, who would hear the gospel, who would receive the word of God, who would bow the knee to Christ as king. And he has called each and every one of you to be here this morning to celebrate the work that God did three years ago, but that was already rooted and founded and planned in eternity past. Isn't that amazing to think about? And I, just, I praise God for this congregation. I praise God for the reports. Thomas and I talk all the time over the phone. I praise God for the reports that I hear of what God is doing, that God's hand is evident in this church family, that this is, uh, to use the analogy that John sees in the book of Revelation, this is a lampstand that is shining brightly in a dark world. And my prayer for this church the same prayer that I pray for my own church back home in Los Angeles. I pray that this lampstand would just illuminate every corner of your city. That you would shine brightly. That as we celebrate year three, we would look to year 30 and say, God, make us faithful every single day from now till then. And then to year 50 and year 60, as long as God would allow us to gather together God, use this church to shine brightly, to be ambassadors in this, in this context, in this city, in this culture. So my question this morning is, how do we do that? How do we gather together and run with faithfulness and fidelity so that God would continue to be able to use us, to continue to be able to grow us, to continue to be able to let us shine brightly in this city? The Bible uses many analogies to speak to the Christian life. The Bible says that the Christian life is a war to be fought. It's a cross to be carried. And it's a race to be run. You don't enter a race just for the purpose of starting the race, right? The gun goes off, you run a couple feet and you say, I did it. I I began the race, I started the race, I'm in the race and that's all I needed to do. No, the point of beginning the race is to finish the race. So the question is, how do we ensure that we will finish our race well? Not only Ambassador Bible Fellowship as a a congregation, as a corporate body. If you as a corporate body are to finish your race well, then you individually need to be running your race well. 
So that begs the question, how do we run the race of the Christian faith well? How do we do this? I believe the author of Hebrews will give us three very specific ways that you and I can apply to our lives today in order to ensure that we will run the race well. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and we will read verses 1 through 3 and ask God's blessing on our time as we study His Word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary. Father, we come before you this morning and we are privileged and expectant as we open your word. We long to be conformed into the image of Christ. We long to be shaped into the character of our Savior. We want to look more like him. God, we desire that faith would grow, not just new saving faith, but sanctifying faith, faith that will continue us in this race all the way to the finish line. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we want the word of God to resound in this building this morning in such a way that Christ would be on display. That we would confess him as Lord, bow the knee with joyful and glad submission to him, and we would run to him. That you would encourage us this morning with ways in which we are to run to him. That we would not grow weary. God, I pray for those in this room who are weary in their race. They're weary in their running. They're struggling. They're considering just giving up altogether. What's the, the point? What's the purpose? God, I pray this morning you would encourage their hearts to keep on running. That you are so worth it. That you would show them that you are the greatest treasure in the entire universe. There is nothing in this world that compares to the satisfaction that you can bring. And that they would run to you. God, I pray for those in this room that have not yet begun their race. They are currently running a different race. And it is a race that is as quick as they can go away from you. As fast as they can get away from you. And they are heading into judgment even now. God, I pray that they would begin their race today by seeing Christ as the only way of salvation and that you would bring about saving faith. Father, we ask the prayer that the psalmist prays in Psalm 119. Open our eyes that we would behold the wonderful things from your law. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Three ways 
to run our race well. I'm sure you caught most of the ways as we read through uh, this passage. Three ways that we are to run. Let's begin with number one in verse one. If we're to run the race of faith well, if we're to run well and get to the finish line, number one, we must listen to the witnesses. We have to listen to the witnesses. This is in verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 has just told us all of these men and women in the uh, well-known Hall of Fame of Faith chapter, by faith, by faith, we sang the song, by faith, and it talks about some of these individuals that by faith they did certain things that were just amazing, and they finished their race well. And the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 12 by saying, therefore, listening to them as witnesses, let's be encouraged by them to run our race well. Let's listen to their testimony. That's why I wrote chapter 11, so that you could hear their testimony and you could run well as they did. You need people in the stands to cheer you on when you're playing a game. When you're in some form of an athletic event, if there's no one in there, it's very discouraging. I mean, we even see that today, right? You see, you're going to watch a football game and there's nobody in the stands because of COVID. And yet, because it would be so strange for two teams to be playing in this arena that's massive and no one's there, they're piping in fan noise, right? They're piping in an audience that's not there, but they want to make it look like they're there because it's so weird that no one's there rooting on the team. See this in baseball. There's cardboard cutouts of people just stuck in a pose. This is not normal. We see this, we go, something's wrong here. What's happening? We need encouragement. We need help. We need people around us that will tell us Jesus is better than sin, that will tell us God is better than anything in this world. We need witnesses that can encourage us. And these witnesses are not passive observers. They're engaged participants. They're speaking to us through the word of God and they're giving us testimony. Listen to their testimony. Listen to what they're saying. Witnesses in the scripture are there to convince us that God, who has given us promises, will never disappoint those who place their confidence in him. That's what the witnesses are there to prove. If you trust in the Lord, you will never be disappointed. You will never be put out by him. He's made a promise to you. He will never go back on that promise. He is trustworthy. He is true. He is faithful. And the witnesses are there to tell us that. There's really two types of witnesses that I believe are here in this passage. We have witnesses that have gone before us in life. They've run their race to completion. They're here in the Bible. And that's why we need to be diving into the Bible. We have those in the Bible who have finished their race. They've run. We can see their testimony. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, These things in the Old Testament happened as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. So we have stories and narratives in the Old Testament that were written to give us an example of what to do or not to do and to instruct our hearts in how to live life before the Lord. Romans chapter 15 verses 4 through 6 says the same thing. Whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. I don't know if any of you feel hopeless this morning. 
God says, I've given you my word so that you can have hope. Listen to the witnesses who were hopeless. And then God came and gave hope. Listen to their testimony. This is why the psalmist loves the word of God. This is why so many people in the scriptures love the word because it gives them hope and encouragement. I want to plead with you, Ambassador Bible Fellowship, give yourself to the word of God in this, your fourth year as a church. Give yourself to the word of God. Give every day to the word. Lay yourself bare before the word and say, God, speak to me through your word in such a way that I would be changed, that I would hear the witnesses. I think there's another category of witnesses that that we can see not only in this text, but all over the pages of the New Testament. And it's those in your life who are running alongside you today. There are witnesses in this room today that are crying out with their life. God's worth it. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your adoration. Hebrews chapter 13, just a couple chapters over. Verse 12, or verse 17 rather, will say, Obey your leaders and submit to them because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Do this, let them do this with joy and not with grief. You have amazing leaders in this church, pastors, elders, deacons. You have amazing godly men. You have godly women who help lead growth groups. You have places where you can hear the testimony of witnesses who are just a little bit further in their race. And they long to encourage you. So can I plead with you two things from this first point? Number one, give yourself to the word of God this next year and give yourself to intentional discipleship, intentional accountability. Where you're saying, please, I need to be involved in your life. You need to be involved in my life. I need the testimony of you as a witness who's running just a little bit further ahead of me. Teach me about what to do, what not to do. I want to live life to please the Lord. If you don't do this, you will be divorced from the word of God. So you'll have no strength or power or energizing force to enable you to say no to sin. And you will be divorced from any form of accountability. You'll be isolated on your own. And an isolated Christian will not be a Christian for very long. So give yourself to the word of God and give yourself to discipleship and accountability. Number two, the second way that we are to run well, not only do we need to listen to the witnesses around us, But secondly, we need to lay aside the hindrances, lay aside the hindrances. Back in verse one, the second half, not only do we listen to that cloud of witnesses that's surrounding us, but we also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We're running a race, so we want to take any weight that is holding us back, that's slowing us down, we want to take that off. The word for an encumbrance is a word that's literally used back with Greek athletes to strip everything off in order to run as fast as they could. Anything that was on them that they needed to take off in order to let them run very quickly, that's an encumbrance. And the author of Hebrews gives us two types of encumbrances. I think this is so helpful to clarify and to qualify what the encumbrances are that would impede our running. The first... Lay aside every encumbrance. And the second is sin. What's the difference between an encumbrance and sin? Well, I would say this. An encumbrance is a good thing. 
that becomes a bad thing because it becomes a God thing in your life. It's a good thing that becomes a bad thing because you've turned it into an idol. That's what an encumbrance is. A good thing, a totally morally neutral or morally good thing. But it's been turned into a bad thing in your life. It's slowing you down because it's become some form of idolatry. Something that is hindering your race. Something that's taking your eyes off of Christ. Something that's pulling your affections away from the Lord. What are these hindrances? What are these encumbrances? What are these things that slow us down? Well, I can't tell you what it is for you. But I think I can identify or help you identify what it might be for you. Begin running the race. Start running as fast as you can after Christ. And the things that impede your progress as you run will start becoming obvious. Only those who fail to run feel no resistance. So if you start running the race, you'll start feeling things that are slowing you down. Good things that you used to be involved in, but you think, I I might need to cut this out of my life because it's slowing me down as I'm running. Throw those things away. Anything that impedes your progress, throw it away. Maybe here's some examples just to help you begin thinking. Maybe it's fashion. Maybe it's the way that you want to look or your appearance. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's leisure. Maybe it's academic goals, uh, sports, friendships, books, professional ambitions, hobbies, television, the internet, a specific genre of movies or music, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. These are not morally bad things, but they can become bad things when they become a functional God in your life. Those things are good gifts that God's given us, but God's gifts make terrible gods. So throw them away. That's the first category. An encumbrance that slows us down. And then he also says sin which so easily entangles us or ensnares us. This is the second category. Not only do we have to throw away or lay aside any encumbrance, a good thing that's become a bad thing because it's become idolatry, but we also need to lay aside bad things. Sin that's tripped us up. And I would just say here, see this morning's equipping hour. This is what repentance looks like. We, we heard it this morning. Repentance is a gift from the Lord that comes through the word of God, shining a spotlight on your sins so that you see it for what it is. Some of you in this room, you might need to do radical amputation with the Lord. Maybe even now. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it far from you. It's better for your body to go in pieces to heaven than your whole body to go to hell. You need to deal radically with sin. I love how Jesus says that. It's not enough to just pluck out your eye. You have to pluck your eye out and then throw it. Because Jesus knows we're going to pluck our eye out and go, no, I really want this. Put it on ice. Let's go to the doctor. Let's make this thing work again. Jesus says, no, you need to pluck it out and throw it as fast as, as you get away from it because you know this can ultimately destroy my soul. By the way, the witnesses will tell you that. Listen to the witnesses. Listen to David, a man after God's own heart, who will tell you, you can be a sinner and be forgiven by God. And that is the most amazing truth in the world. But there are still consequences. How many times do you think David rehearsed in his mind, if I had just said no, 
As I was on the balcony looking down at Bathsheba, if I had just said no, his entire life, though he was forgiven from that moment forward, it was a train wreck. Listen to the witnesses who would tell you this morning, sin isn't worth it. It's not worth it. It satisfies for a season, but in the end, it brings death. There is not one sin that any sinner in the entire universe has committed that they would say that was worth it. By the time we get to death and judgment, all of us will say none of those sins that I was involved in were worth it. So throw aside the encumbrances, throw aside sin. John Piper says it this way, until you believe that life is war and that the stakes are your soul, you will probably just play at Christianity with no blood earnestness, no vigilance, no passion, no wartime mindset. And if that's where you are this morning, then your position is very precarious. The enemy has lulled you into sleep or into a peacetime mentality as if nothing serious is at stake. And God in his mercy has, has you here this morning and had this sermon appointed to wake you up and to put you on a wartime footing, to wake you up. And I would just plead with you, friends, have done with sin. Go to the witnesses that are in this room. Say, would you please help me to fight this sin? Please be involved in my life so that I can say no. It might be painful. It usually is to cut away sin. But something amazing happens when you do cut it away. And again, Pastor Bruce talked about that this morning. C.S. Lewis describes this in a very strange illustration in the book, The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've read that. It's not uh, speaking of marriage divorce. It's speaking of the chasm between heaven and hell. And it's this allegorical narrative. And there's a man who's wanting to get into heaven and he's not going to be allowed into heaven. He's died. He's a ghost. He's not going to be allowed into heaven because he has this lizard that's on his shoulder that he loves. And it represents sin. And you can't get into heaven when you have sin that you're coddling, that you love. And there's an angel saying, get rid of that lizard. You need to kill that lizard or else you can't get in here. And he's standing at the gate going, but I love the lizard. I love my sin. I, I'll just cover him. I'll, I'll, I'll walk into heaven and I'll be okay. But I love my lizard. Finally, he decides heaven's better than my sin. So he takes the lizard off. He throws it on the ground. He stomps it to death. And at the moment that that lizard dies, the lizard is transformed in this beautiful white horse that he is able to get on and ride into heaven. I love that picture. The sin that keeps us from heaven, if we would do what Romans 8 tells us to be more than conquerors, we would take that sin, we'd throw it down, we'd kill it, and even that sin, as we destroy it, can be used to glorify the Lord as it propels us forward to say, Jesus, you're worth it. You're better than that sin. Cutting aside, cutting away and laying aside sin is difficult. It's painful and it's rarely ever fun. But it is the very thing that will catapult you forward in your race. If you want to run well, you need to listen to the witnesses that are around you and you need to lay aside any, in, any hindrance that is encumbering you. That leads us to number three. The third way that we are to run our race well. Listen to the witnesses, lay aside the hindrances, and number three, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is verses 2 and 3. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing. Uh, those of you who are grammar nerds, I'm a grammar nerd. I love grammar. Fixing 
is a participle that modifies the main verb. The main verb in this uh, verse, in these verses, is run. We need to run, and the modifiers tell us how we're to run. So we're to run. How do we run? Well, we run by looking, by laying aside, and by fixing. By fixing. That's how we run. And since the word run is in the present tense, the modifying participle is also in the present tense, which means every second of every day, we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus. Every second of every day, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Focus our attention on Him. Why? He's the author and the perfecter of faith. And He endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He has finished His race, and He ran it in perfection. We do this in any area of life. If you want to be good at something, you look at whoever is the best at that thing. If you want to be a good piano player, you have to look at Beethoven and Rachmaninoff and Chopin. If you want to be a good guitarist, look to Eric Clapton and Tommy Emmanuel and Stevie Ray Vaughan and B.B. King. If you want to be a good runner, look to the one who ran his race in perfection. And that's Jesus Christ alone. Look to him. Fix your attention on him. Notice we're not to fix our attention on anything else around us. Like a a runner in the Olympics who is just staring straight at the goal ahead. Or like horses that are in races that have those blinders on so that they can't be distracted by the other horses around them or by people in the stands or by a daisy or a a flower that they see in their path as they're running. We need blinders on that will focus our attention on Jesus. Notice, by the way, what we are not supposed to be fixing our eyes on. We're not supposed to fix our eyes on our circumstances. That will not enable us to run well. Saying, well, the weather is really bad outside. I don't think we should be running today. That to me is like trials in our life. Don't fix your eyes on the trials and say, well, life's really bad. It's really hard and we should just sit down for a while until the trial goes away. No, run. Fix your eyes on Christ. We're not supposed to fix our eyes on other runners. We're to listen to them. We can look around and say, Uh, Can you help me? But we're not supposed to fix our eyes on other runners. Sometimes when we do that, we think, why are they so far ahead of me? What am I doing that I'm failing in life? Why are they so far ahead of me? Or look at how awesome I am that I'm so far ahead of them. Don't fix your eyes on other runners. And can I add a third thing? We're not supposed to fix our eyes on ourselves. There are so many preachers today... And I praise the Lord that I know it never happens in this pulpit. There are so many preachers today that will tell the congregation before them, you need to look inside. You need to fix yourself. You need to stare at what's going on inside you. You need to, you're supposed to walk out these doors and just stare at yourself and fix yourself. Now, I know at this pulpit and I know at my pulpit back home, we do say you need to to, to look at what's going on in in your heart. Look at the fruit that you're evidencing. But as quick as you can, after you identify those things, get off of yourself and look at Jesus. Look to Christ. We can cripple our people when we say, look at yourself. Keep fixing your eyes on yourself and your progress and your growth. Then people will say, am I growing enough? Am I running enough? Am I praying enough? Am I giving enough? Am I doing enough? We need to say, look to Jesus. Be preoccupied by him. Don't be preoccupied by yourself. But why? Why does the author of Hebrews tell us to fix our eyes on Christ? I want to give you two reasons why I believe 
The author of Hebrews tells us we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Reason number one is because Jesus ran his race in absolute perfection. Fix your eyes on the one who ran his race in absolute perfection. We listen to the witnesses, but we don't fix our eyes on the witnesses. Why? Because they all failed in their races. They all failed. Just read Hebrews 11 sometime this week. Notice who's in there. There are some messed up people in that chapter. Jephthah's in that chapter. He sacrificed his daughter, killed his daughter to sacrifice her to God. And he's in there as a man of faith. There are messed up people. By the way, that's an encouragement to us today. You can still run your race well, even if you have the baggage of sin around you. But Jesus never had that baggage of sin. All of the saints in Hebrews chapter 11, all of your disciples, all the people around you are preaching a better message than they themselves can live out, but not Jesus. He's the author. That's a word for the pioneer, the one who's uh, leading the way, who's making uh, the path known for us to follow. And he's the perfecter. He's not another one in that group of Hebrews 11. He's never sinned. He's never once told a lie. He's never once had a lustful thought. He's never sinned at all. And as the pioneer, he paved the way for you and for me. As the perfecter, he displayed a perfect model of faithfulness for you and for me. And as the forerunner, getting to the finish line, his presence at that finish line guarantees that our finish is possible. We look to Jesus because he's the only hope of our salvation. His perfection is the only hope that we have to get to heaven. Do you know... That you have been made right before the God of the universe because you're trusting in the perfection of Jesus. You see, so often today, the world would say, your greatest problem is outside of you. Your greatest problem is your circumstances or the toxic relationships outside of you. Your greatest problem is outside of you, and the greatest solution is inside of you. That's what every religion says. That's what our context and our culture says. The gospel says your greatest problem is inside of you. And there's no solution to that problem in you. The only solution is outside of you. It's looking to Jesus. It's pleading for his perfection to be placed into your account. You and I deserve a penalty and a punishment for our sins that is infinite judgment and wrath against our sins in hell for all of eternity. And Jesus said, I'll gladly take that. That's why he says, for the joy set before him, I'll endure the cross. I'll despise the the shame. I will do what they cannot do for themselves. I will take their place on the cross, bearing their punishment, bearing their shame, bearing their sin, so that I can get it away from us. I can deal with it so I can remove it from us so then we can be in a reconciled relationship. You realize the beauty of that word joy in verse 2? What's the joy that Jesus had as he went to the cross? It was glorifying the Father, absolutely. But in glorifying the Father, brothers and sisters, you and I were that joy. He knew going to the cross and exchanging his perfection into our account for our sin placed into his account, that that exchange would bring about our salvation. Redemption was impossible apart from that. And so he said, I'll gladly do that to save them. 
John Calvin said it this way. Christ's aim in all that he did was so to restore us to God's grace as to make us the children of men, the children of God. To make us, who were children of Gehenna, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. That was Christ's ultimate aim. To share his life, to share his glory with us so that we might share in his inheritance. His standing before the Father and his life with us. We're to fix our eyes on Christ because he ran his race in perfection. Do you know this morning... Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that his perfection is placed in your account, that you are trusting in him for salvation? If you do, listen to the words of John Calvin in his institutes as he describes what justification looks like, what being declared righteous before the God of the universe looks like. I love this example. He he goes to the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember that story? Uh, Jacob wants to steal the blessing from uh, Esau going before Isaac, his father, and um, dressing up as the, the, the hairy Esau. You remember the story in the Bible? He needs to look like Esau or uh, feel like Esau because Isaac can't really see. He needs to smell like Esau. He's trying to take the place of Esau. Listen to what Calvin says. As Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, so he concealed himself in his brother's clothing. And wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor. Remember, Isaac says, you smell like him. You don't sound like him. You smell like him and you feel like him. It gave out this agreeable odor. So Jacob ingratiated himself with his father so that to his benefit, he received the blessing while impersonating another. We, in like manner, hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother, Christ, so that we may be attested, clothed in his righteousness in God's sight, in order that we might appear before God's face unto salvation, we must smell sweetly with Christ's odor. Our vices must be covered and buried in his perfection. He ran his race in perfection to offer you that perfect record of righteousness, to enshroud you in holiness, to take your sin away and declare you not guilty. This is justification. Martin Luther used the illustration of marriage to describe justification. He told a story of a king, a great king representing Christ, who married a poor girl who was a prostitute, who was filled with shame and debt and filth. And one day she says at their marriage, she says, all that I am, I give to you and all that I have, I give to you. But she has nothing. And in tears, she says, I have nothing to give, but everything that I have, I give to you. And the king turns around and says, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I give to you. That's what we did. That's what uh, what happened when Christ saved us. When he went to the cross and he rose from the dead, he says, all that I have is yours. The only thing that we had to offer him was the sin that made salvation necessary. That's why, whether we're singing in our worship songs, whether we are meeting in our growth groups, Whether we're hearing the preaching of the word, we're exalting Christ so that every single moment is nothing less than a banquet table that is set before every single hearer to see Jesus as their all-satisfying treasure. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Christ and never get beyond him. Never move away from him. Make Jesus Christ the preoccupation of your life. 
And so I plead with you here this morning, if you do not know that Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, if you do not know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you have not bowed the knee to him as Lord over your life, I plead with you this morning, repent, turn to Christ. He has made a way for your sins to be washed away. He's made a way for you to be declared righteous. And I plead with you, turn to Christ and live, be reconciled to the Father. For those of you who have been reconciled to the Father, I want to encourage you that as you fix your eyes on Christ and as you see the justification that is yours in Him, it's what will compel you in your running to throw away any hindrance so that you can run faster to get to Him. Knowing knowing that Jesus is your greatest satisfaction will help you to lay aside sin and encumbrances. It makes it easier, more purposeful, and not legalistic. When it's for relational purposes, when you're saying, I love Jesus, so I want to get away with this, it's not legalistic. It's what the old Puritans used to say, the expulsive power of a greater affection. I love Jesus, and so anything that does not glorify Him or please Him or show Him forth to the world, I want to do away with it because I love Jesus more than I love sin. One Puritan author said it this way, At the Sea of Galilee, Jesus called the disciples to follow Him, and so they did leaving behind their boats and their businesses. They were so taken with Christ that they never felt the cost of their renunciation. They walked in the epicenter of a new adoration that had silently slain their old affections. Renunciation that is self-aware is mere asceticism, suddenly boasting in its own magnificent sacrifice. The apostles came to Jesus, having surrendered the possessions that stood between them and the will of God, And even so, we don't remember them because they chose poverty, but because they adored Christ. If we too are spellbound by his excellence, then relinquishment will be more of a byproduct of devotion rather than a prerequisite of it. And then he ends with this sentence. I love it. True lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. Turn your eyes upon Christ. Turn your eyes upon Christ. Why? Because he ran his race in absolute perfection. But the second reason why we must fix our eyes on Christ is because Jesus ran his race against the greatest opposition. We fix our eyes on Christ because he ran his race in absolute perfection, so we see our justification that's possible because of what he did. And then we fix our eyes on Christ because as he went through the greatest of oppositions and overcame them, then so too we, as we're running and there's hurdles in our way and there's events that are cataclysmic in our way that we think this should be the end of the race. I should stop running. We look to Christ so that we won't grow weary. This is verse 3. Consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that, consider him, so that you will not grow weary. Growing weary and losing heart. Actually, two words that are used by Aristotle in extra-biblical Greek, Greek that's outside the Bible. Aristotle used those two words, and they're used to speak of a runner collapsing before the finish line. So exhausted, so wearied, with zero energy and perseverance and endurance, that they just collapse before they make it to the end. And so the author of Hebrews says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to run through the tape. I don't want you to collapse before you get to the finish line. And so you need to fix your eyes on Christ who ran. And in so many places in his life, he could have easily said, enough's enough, I'm done. 
Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, just weeping before his father, sweating great drops of blood. He says to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I could die right now, but I'm going to make it to the cross. I'm going to keep on going. Consider him. Don't collapse before you get to the finish line. That word consider is a word that means to calculated, uh, calculated reflection. Measuring up. Is Jesus worth it? Is he better? You're comparing Jesus and following him to not. And you're saying, that's it. I'm following Christ. The race is always strenuous. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's sometimes very discouraging. And it's occasionally hostile. But Jesus made it. By the way, notice how the author of Hebrews says the word Jesus in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is the first time since chapter 10, verse 19, that he uses that word, not a title, Christ or Son of God. He uses the word Jesus to remind us that he ran his race in perfection against greatest opposition as a human. Remember chapter 4, right? He's our great high priest. He knows what it is to be afflicted with weakness because he ran as a human. He never played his God trump card, right? He's 100% God, 100% man, but he never says, this is getting so hard. I don't know if I can uh, fight this temptation anymore. I think I'm going to sin. Oh, I'm God. Done. Trump card. I'm out. He never did that. He always fought as a human through every single battle that we face. Yet without sin. Thomas Schreiner says, as a human being, Jesus knows the frailties and groanings that beset the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest, but is himself intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced the full range of temptation. The delight and joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it could bring pleasure. He understands every temptation we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power. He shared in our weakness and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of his father. As our, as our high priest, he did what no other high priest could do. He did. He is personally what no other high priest could be. He endured what no other high priest could endure. And he can give what no other high priest can give. So the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on him. Consider him. Look to him. Not only because he is your perfection, uh, your example and your justification, but he's also your encouragement. I wonder how many of you run to Christ in the midst of your weakness. Or you feel that I can't run to Jesus. I have to clean myself up. Pastor Bruce said that this morning. I've got to clean myself up and then go to church. You feel like Jesus won't want me in the state that I'm in right now. He, he's so perfect, so holy, he won't want me in the state that I'm in right now. I need to cleanse myself and then I'll go to him. I just want to read... A quote from Dane Ortland in a magnificent book called Gentle and Lowly that he wrote. 
says this, when we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus. Because we know exactly how he will receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we're just aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our own depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. But his restraint flows from his tender heart for his people. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. My friends, if we're to run our race well, we need to fix our eyes on Christ because the entire point of running is to get to be with him. It's to get to be with him. That's the entire reason we are a church We're a church to gather together in fellowship and encourage each other. He's worth it and we're going to be with him soon. Hold on and keep running. Don't give up. We gather to encourage each other. Then we scatter to go tell the world your sin, your shame, your guilt. It can be forgiven. It can be covered. Your hopelessness can be remedied and you can have hope beyond your wildest dreams. Come run with me. Follow Christ and live. How do we run the race? We listen to the witnesses, we lay aside the hindrances, and we look to Christ. I want to end just on the the shoulders of three spiritual giants, and I want to let their words be an encouragement to you, as they have been to my own heart. First, Charles Spurgeon says this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it's a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is. Little love to our own dying Savior. Little joy in our precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the Beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart. But, remember, don't just stare inside. Look in there and then look to Christ. Don't stop at sorrow, he says. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once. Go at once to the cross. There and only there can you wake up your spirit. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead we may have become, let's go again. Yes, let's go again. In all the rags and poverty and depravity of our own natural condition, let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with love This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith. And this will bring back the tenderness of our hearts. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. So fix your eyes on Christ and run to Him. Thomas Goodwin says this, That which keeps men away from Jesus, keeps men from pursuing Jesus, is that they don't know his mind and heart. 
Maybe you feel this morning you're just too broken. There's just too much sin. There's too much deceit. It's just too much and you can't go to him. The truth is, Goodwin says, Jesus is more glad of you than you could ever be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meaning. Have you a mind? He that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you will meet you more than halfway, as the prodigal's father is said to do. So therefore, come to him if you knew his heart. You would. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run to him. And finally, I I want to end with this quote from Dane Ortland. He says this. Whatever is crumbling all around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. The love that Jesus has in his heart for you, the real you. Go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he's there. He lives there, right there, and his heart is for you in gentle lowliness. Not on the other side of it, but in the darkness, he's gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. And then he echoes Thomas Goodwin's words, If you knew his heart, you would. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer for you this morning. Fix your eyes on Christ. Run to him. If you knew his heart for you, nothing could hold you back from running to him.